In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, one God. Amen. Christ is in our midst. He is never shall be. From a news article quite some time ago. In November 1961, I was five months old. My family had no idea why their otherwise healthy baby boy had been born with short arms, twisted hands, and no thumbs. But by the end of the month, the truth was finally out in the open. After a German newspaper reported that thalidomide was the likely cause for the mysterious spate of disabled babies, the producer of the medication caved to the growing pressure and withdrew all products containing thalidomide from what had been a very lucrative over-the-counter product. A few days later, thalidomide's British licensee followed suit in the UK, but by then the damage was done. Thalidomide had strong sedative properties. Many women in the early weeks of pregnancy had taken it to ease their morning sickness. Utterly unaware of its effect on the unborn child, it can be teratogenic or monster forming. Limbs can fail to develop properly. In some cases, also eyes, ears, and internal organs. No one knows how many miscarriages the drug caused, but it's estimated that in Germany alone, 10,000 babies were born affected by thalidomide. Many were too damaged to survive for long. Next. A 12-year-old boy arrives with his father to spend a weekend on a trip to the California coast, volunteering with an organization that focuses on providing outings and leisurely activities for adults with developmental disabilities. He sees people of all kinds, and having a distant cousin with Down syndrome, he'd been familiar with people who are a little different than him. And he was excited for the weekend. He recalled the childlike joy that his older cousin had at the repeated building up and knocking down of a simple block tower. Then as they were assembling on that day in preparation for the weekend trip, he saw someone different, far different from the rest. Narrow and elongated head, offset jaw, such that the top and bottom teeth would not rest shut like most of us resulting in obviously worn-down teeth, a snarling look on his face, wide eyes. The man had one arm that looked smaller than the other, bent and seemingly stuck in place, pinned to his abdomen. At the end of the arm was a withered hand. The man looked to be bow-legged and crow-footed to an extreme, walking with a laborious limp that made the boy feel uncomfortable to watch. Knowing that they had a three-hour drive ahead, his dad would be driving one of the vans. The boy thought to himself, I hope I don't have to sit by that guy. They started to load the vans. The boy sat behind his father, next into the van, was Ray, the man described above. The kid 
though immature, saw the act of providence in this moment. He was introduced to Ray, and the frightening face formed into a smile as much as it was able. He could barely speak, but his eyes and smile softened the heart of the young boy who began to speak with him. Ray listened and laughed at almost everything that the boy said. This one who had been looked upon even as a kind of monster by the boy was discovered to be a person and even more evoked the reality of the young man's personhood in a way he had never experienced before. So humbling and profound was the encounter. Over the course of the weekend, the two interacted often. Since Ray was unable to keep a steady pace, the boy pushed him in a wheelchair. The two unlikely friends laughing and smiling together the whole time, being persons to one another. From what we know of Ray, he was one of those thalidomide babies, born deformed and immediately rejected by his parents. We don't know who he was raised by. But by the time of the story, I believe he was living in a group home. And I think not expected to live much longer because of his condition. I'm the boy in the story. Still humbled. Trying to hold it together. (laughs) And brought to tears by the recollection. I was so inspired by the, the event that I wrote an article A young man, kind of scary, wrote an article for the publication that that organization put out sharing how special the experience was. This experience changed my life. A young boy who idealized athletes, who wanted to be strong like Jose Canseco, and fast like Ricky Henderson, and weightless like Michael Jordan. I was transformed by my time with Ray. Honestly, it's like he was an angel sent to me by God to teach me what it means to be human. And to be human, of course, did not mean to be successful and athletic and attractive. To be human meant to value the presence of another person, to be persons together. No pretense, no masks, nothing to hide. I was reminded of this story while I was reflecting on today's gospel reading, the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, spoken by our Savior himself. I was reminded of this story because we see that something similar took place in the parable, though with a different outcome. The rich man spent his days living in comfort with his salvation, sitting right outside of the gate of his home. His angel sent by God, whom he chose to ignore. Our holy tradition is replete with sayings about the interior life, the life of prayer and repentance, and personal purification. Beautiful words like St. Seraphim's, acquire the spirit of peace and thousands around you will be saved. That's become like John 3.16 for us. Personal piety is profound. But the tradition as an extension of the very teaching of the gospel, 
is filled with pithy exhortations to active love. Such as that of St. Anthony the Great. He says, our life and death is with our neighbor. If we gain our brother, we've gained God. But if we scandalize our brother, we've sinned against Christ. In the famous words of St. Siloan the Athenite, my brother is my life. What an inconvenience it is to acknowledge the other at times. Perhaps it steals me away from my fixation on achieving my own comfort. Rich food and comfortable clothing, maybe, but more often the achievement of just my own individualism, getting my way. If he was a bit more like me, if he had it together, see, he's probably getting what he deserves, sitting there sick and full of sores, If I leave him, perhaps he'll benefit more from meeting his own end than from my monetary beneficence. Yeah, so I'll ignore the needs of the man. He's not poor, he's despicable. Getting what he deserves. And me, I'm getting what I deserve. The dignity of a life of relative comfort. Of course, I have my struggles. There are those who are better off than I am. In his homily on this parable, St. Nikolai Vilimirovich wrote the following. He said, had Lazarus been a healthy man, clad in fine silks and appeared at the gate, he would have without any doubt been greeted by the rich man and invited to his table. He would have been greeted and invited in as a man. However, the rich man did not see a man or acknowledge one in Lazarus. In his poverty and his sores, he despised this creature of God's as though he did not exist turned his eyes from him in order not to foul his own sight. He considered himself as his own personal possession and his riches not as a loan from God, but exclusively as his own. He buried the talent that God had given him in the earth of his own body and no one had any profit from it. His heart became bloated with surfeiting and drunkenness. He was totally blind to the spiritual world and spiritual values. He saw only with his bodily eyes, heard only with his bodily ears, lived a life wholly devoted to things of the flesh. He continues, the rich man's soul was as full of sores as Lazarus' body. His soul was a true image of Lazarus' body. And Lazarus' body was a true image of his soul. God thus placed two men on earth to be a mirror, the one of the other, one in the mansion and the other at its gate. The rich man's outward splendor mirrored Lazarus's inner state, and Lazarus's outward separating source mirrored the rich man's inner state. Was it necessary for the Lord to enumerate all the rich man's sins? They were revealed at one stroke. Every single one of them The rich man's lack of compassion towards Lazarus drew aside the curtain from the rich man's dump of a soul. And all the filth of this dump to the eyes and the ears, the nose and the tongue, all of it were revealed in an instant. What a convicting explication by St. Nikolai. Of course, we see here not that the man was condemned for being rich, but for his lack of compassion. 
We must also say that if, if one sees the person in need as his neighbor, especially the one right outside the gate of one's home, then the proper response is to give from whatever abundance he might have. We may not have much money, but let us not be miserly with our attention. We may not have pressing demands and obligations, but we can always see the other as a person. And the radical love that the gospel calls us to is not a philosophical anthropology of human equality, but to the existential realization that my brother is my life. We could also say something beautifully extreme like, my brother, my neighbor is me. The one that God allows me to encounter, whoever it may be, is an extension of who I am. At the essence of our understanding of humanity is that it's relational. To be a person is to be in relationship with others. And not just one, but whomever God, by his most wonderful providence, would have us encounter. The man in today's parable was not as impressionable as I was when I encountered Ray in my youth. He willfully rejected the other. And in doing so, he rejected his own personhood. Sealing his own eternal fate. The pressing message we're being provided here today is not that we should fear living in eternity in hell, although that's a terrible prospect. But that the way that we live now matters. The way we treat others, the way we see them, is an indication of our susceptibility to God's salvation. Eternity in heaven means eternal personhood. And if we think that we are above being in communion with another person, any other person, then we've already chosen our own hell. But beloved in Christ, we don't have to fall into this lie. God's speaking his truth to us now and revealing our calling. That's what he does in these parables of the gospel. Yes, heaven and hell are real. And we should long for one and not be indifferent to the possibility of the other. But now, now we have the opportunity to restore to the world something of the kingdom that was never destroyed, never ceased to be, and always will be. In this kingdom, in this vision of life, we freely admit and live as those who, who see that the most intimate, infinite value is to be found in the life of the human person. And that when we realize this radical reality, we come to understand that I am my brother. And my brother is my life. You might not have an experience exactly like I did with Ray. That angel of a man veiled in infirmity. But you will always, I repeat, always and repeatedly encounter those who are obviously wounded. So let us see their woundedness. Their outward sores as a mirror of our own soul. We're not better. So let us not judge. Let us not resent or ignore. God grant us, shallow though we be, to see the deep heart of those we encounter and to offer them whatever coin, or whatever piece of bread we have so that even for a moment, a heart will reach out and make contact with another heart. 
and true personhood will be revealed. And with a word from Metropolitan Ephraim, Kyriakos, Tripoli. He says, let us always remember that our brothers are our life because they are the image of God who gave us life and who continues to give us life. Let us share every good thing with others who are in the image of our Creator so that the Lord may permit us to share in His heavenly kingdom because in all simplicity, if we love His children, then we have loved Him in them without loving what is seen. It's not possible to love what is not seen. Amen.